0: We're beginning a new sermon series this morning entitled Vignettes of Discipleship, Stories of Committed, Mature Followers of Jesus Christ. And we have a fantastic story taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, on their way to Jerusalem, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Ladies, imagine how terrifying it would be to find out with only two hours' notice that your dinner guest tonight is none other than the Son of God. <laughs> you turn to your husband And ask incredulously, you invited who over for dinner? (gasps) Well, he can't come. (laughs) He's not allowed. That's not really an option, is it? Think about the state of your house right this minute. What if your lunch guest this afternoon was coming over right after church? is, uh, Is this guy by the name of Jesus... Are there dirty dishes in the sink right now? Are toys littering the living room floor? Is there any food in the pantry? What are are you going to fix? Has the the, the lawn been mowed over the last month? You know, having God over for dinner was no easy task. Uh, Especially so because when Jesus arrives, it's not just him who's coming over to your house. Wherever Jesus goes, 12 go with him. Which means that they're not two feet which need to be washed, according to Middle Eastern hospitality, but 26 feet which need to be washed. And since dinner guests would always, it was the custom, they would always stay overnight and, and sleep there at the house, they would spend the night, then that means 26 different bed arrangements have to be made, linens and sheets. And what about dinner? You can imagine a very large table is necessary for twenty six mouths to or for thirteen mouths to feed. One of the things I most love about this passage, and to think about it, how many times have you read this passage before? Probably at least a dozen, maybe two or three dozen. What I love about this passage is the picture we get of these two women is perfectly consistent with the picture we find of them in other parts of the gospel accounts. So Mary, for instance. This Mary is the very same Mary in John's gospel who took the vial of pure nard, that very expensive vial, and broke it and anointed Jesus' feet, using her hair to wash his feet in preparation for for burial. That vial of nard we when we looked at the Gospel of John years ago, we saw it cost as much as $40,000. It was likely a priceless family heirloom, the most valuable possession that this home had inside of it. Yet, for Mary, who cares about economics when love is involved? I mean, this is a woman who is deeply devoted to Jesus Christ. Well, in the case of Martha... This is the very same Martha we read about in the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It is at Lazarus's funeral, Jesus steps forward and says, you remember the famous words, roll the stone away. And to which Martha replies, are you crazy, Lord? In the King James Version, I think it says specifically, Lord, he stinketh. Imagine the smell if we roll the stone away. She's not a woman who's afraid to speak her mind. Based on the descriptions of these two women in the passage we have today, who do you think is the firstborn sister? Yes, Martha is the practical, no-nonsense, responsible one who is not afraid to give orders. Martha is the kid who comes home from school and immediately does their homework. And when she's done, she puts her backpack away Checks the chore list and makes sure that her siblings are doing their chores just like they're supposed to be. Uh, Mary, on the other hand, is what is she? She is the dreamer. She's uh, she's the second born of the family. <laughs> she lives in her own little world, oblivious to all of the practicalities of life. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Mary is the poet. Mary the dreamer. Mary the butterfly who goes wherever the wind takes her. Mary the one who lives on a cloud and in a cloud. What I, what I really get a kick out of in this story is, is just the little details. For instance, did you notice the setting of the story where it takes place? It takes place in Martha's house. It's not Mary's house. Mary's not going to be a homeowner until she turns 40. It's Martha's house the, the responsible one. Notice that in a patriarchal society you think they would say that it's Lazarus's house. You know the house would go to the the brother and the family but no 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 it's not Lazarus's house. Isn't it funny that even though Martha is fit to be tied, ready to pull her hair out in frustration over all the work that needs to be done and none of the help that she's receiving. Nevertheless, she never once asks for her little brother's help, because she knows it would do no good. <laughs> they can't be trusted to, uh, to do any kind of uh, useful domestic housework, no. The only positive contribution, it has been said, that Lazarus makes in the entire Bible is that he goes off and dies <laughs> and gets raised from the dead. So if you will, with I always like when I'm reading a story to try and picture in my mind's eye this, as it's happening. I can imagine Martha standing in the kitchen, kneading the challah, the, the bread that was used to feed dinner guests, kneading it. With the challah, you would also fix up a bowl of wine vinegar with seasonings you'd use to dip the, the bread in. You'd fix up another bowl of olive oil with its own seasonings. I mean, we think of hummus and pita, and it was it was much like that. Another food that would have been prepared was a, a tray of figs, also a tray of olives. And here's Martha, or Martha working hard in the kitchen, maybe alone or maybe with some of the domestic servants, and with each course of the meal, she carries her tray out, and she sees that dreamer, poet of a sister of hers, engrossed in the lecture, engrossed in what's going on, completely oblivious, not paying a lick of attention to the responsibilities that are real and at hand. And you can just feel her beginning to burn. The frustration is is mounting as she brings out the second tray and then the third tray. And by the fourth tray, she's completely lost her composure so that when she finally decides to speak up She's, she just blurts out, she blurts out, Jesus, don't you care that I'm doing everything? Tell my sister to help me. And in doing this, not only has she called her sister out, but she has also insulted the honored guest of the house. There are a number of interesting historical tidbits in the story that I've got to study this week and I've enjoyed learning about. For instance, in their culture, and this is true in a number of different cultures in our world today, houses were clearly demarcated between male space and female space. The public room of the house was where the men met. The kitchen and the, the other rooms, the quarters that were unseen Those belonged to the women. It was very common in the first century when the meal was served, it was served to the men only. Today we think about the guy's man cave that's pushed off to the side and he's got his television and he smokes his cigar and drinks his beer in there. Well, in the first century, the man cave was in the living room. (laughs) And it was the, the, the dining room table. They all ate there by themselves while the women eight together in the back with the, uh, the the domestic servants. It wasn't a case that men are superior and women are, women are inferior. It may look chauvinistic to us today, but in their mind, and as I said, is the custom in many cultures in the world today, they thought it was the, the proper separation between the two sexes. When Martha walks out into the living room, I, I wonder if she didn't... <gasps> startle at us for a second what is mary doing there she's she's crossed an invisible boundary that was very well established who does she think she is only a shameless scandalous woman would have the audacity to, to go into the men's room and make herself comfortable there with the men notice in verse 39 look there with me Notice where Martha finds Mary at in the room. It says, she sat at the Lord's feet, listening to all that that he said. Another interesting historical fact on this passage is, is back then, you didn't apply to college for your education. There were no Harvards, Browns, or Yales. You applied to your rabbi in order to be trained. And it was the job of the rabbi to examine and test you to find out who are the most promising applicants. It was the rabbi's job to, to vet you. The rabbi was your SAT test. And, and it was only to the most promising applicants they would be accepted by the rabbi and given the honor of sitting at the rabbi's feet. When we read that phrase, we get the picture of... Um, a starry-eyed adolescent girl, who's sort of dotingly looking up at Jesus, seeing one of her uh, her childhood idols and and taking it all in. No, 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 no. When when it says that she sat at her his feet, it means Mary was selected to be one of his his honored students, which was extremely rare in that day. Historians tell us that rabbis then rarely took women as formal disciples. Only Jesus Christ does. Now, it ought to be noted, especially in a church like ours that, that only has male pastors and male elders, even though Jesus pushes up against cultural norms, nevertheless, he never selected selects women to f- fulfill the office of being one of the 12 apostles. Likewise, in all of the New Testament churches that you read about, none of the churches select women to function in that capacity. And we at All Saints, we have followed that same pattern and that same precedent, which is debated among good Christians, to be sure. But that that understanding of male ordination historically has been the case for Protestants, and even today is still the case to be a Roman Catholic priest or to be an Eastern Orthodox bishop. The only ones that are ordained to that office because of the pattern that was set by Jesus' Men. Nevertheless, Jesus makes it very clear that a woman's place is not in the kitchen. See, there are, there are cultural forces clashing in this passage. Somebody is trying to push Mary back into the kitchen where she belongs. Or so they would say, when Jesus, Jesus says she belongs right here, And in so doing, he says, all Christian sisters belong right here, being trained intellectually, mentally, spiritually, and welcomed as my honored disciples. I think we run the risk, being in a church like ours that only has male pastors, of of reaching wrong conclusions and, and saying, Stupid things like, well, women really shouldn't receive theological training and education. Or women, they really shouldn't have deep, thorough ministry training and experience. If that's what anybody has told you, then they're, on, they're not reading this Bible. Of course they should. Jesus welcomes you. Mary is admitted to his feet. Now, there's another place where this, this phrase is used in the New Testament. Um... It's taken from, see if you remember this, from the book of Acts, where it was the practice of the early church. They, it says that everybody took the land that they owned, they sold it, and they, they took the proceeds of that land. And it says they set those proceeds, do you remember where they set them? At the apostles' feet, at their feet. And in so doing, what that meant is, is that they took their money, and that money no longer belonged to them, That money was entirely at the disposal of the apostles to do as they will. And so what's wonderful about this passage, not only is Mary being admitted to Jesus' feet, but she is willingly laying herself down at Jesus' feet. She is gladly submitting her whole self to concentrating on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God that was being spoken in her presence. I love that image of, uh, of her. She's the one who decided to go <laughs> and put herself at the, at the Lord's feet. Maybe you have at some time in the past when you were studying or maybe it was in school, you read the rule of St. Benedict, one of the monastic orders. One of the very first teachings in the rule of St. Benedict says that obedience comes from a deep listening. Obedience comes from a deep listening, he goes on, a listening of the whole person, a hearing not only with your ears, but with your heart, and with your arms, and with your legs. What a great expression. Obedience comes from a deep listening. And how many of us actually do that when we hear the word of God? Uh, That's what's clearly in evidence here. She places herself at Jesus' feet. Before we get to Jesus' response, which is recorded in verse 41, I I know that you've read this passage many times before. Haven't you ever felt sorry for Martha? Isn't she a sympathetic figure? I've felt that way many times. One of the most important things in their culture was to be hospitable to guests. Martha, all she is doing is, is trying to fulfill her God-given role and responsibility as hostess for these, these 13 men that are in her house, it almost feels like it's cruel of Jesus to rebuke her as he does. Has anybody else kind of felt that way, that Martha gets the short end of the stick? I have. But what I want you to notice in verse 41 is how Jesus, how Jesus rebukes her. And he does it this way. He starts by saying, Martha, Martha. In the Semitic language, when you double somebody's name, that is a way of expressing intense emotion. So think about David in the Old Testament. David, when he's, when he's lost his son in the coup attempt, he says, oh, Absalom, Absalom. It's the intensity of emotion. Or take the cry of dereliction from the cross, where Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. Even outside of the gates of Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I... Whenever you double somebody's name, uh, it's it's expressing just an intensity of heart. And this is important for us because you and I know this happens in our email conversations all the time. We misread another person's tone. We're not able to get the nonverbal feedback that comes in in normal face-to-face conversation. Whenever you're reading something in black and white... Unless the narrator explicitly tells you, oh, he said it tenderly, you really, you really can't quite tell unless you're an Aramaic speaker or a Greek speaker and you know something about your own language, which is when you double a name, you're not saying, get with the program, Martha. You're saying, you're counseling her out of deep love and tremendous compassion. It is with deep love and tremendous compassion that Jesus diagnoses her problem in saying these words, you are worried and upset about many things. You are worried and upset upset about many things. I've wondered when I've read the passage in the past, is, is this the case of Jesus using his divine power kind of stare into somebody's heart and and kind of extrapolate all of the anxieties and worries and stressors that she's got going on in her life. When he says, you're worried about many things, like, does that mean the Roman stock market, (laughs) Uh, recurrent pains in her chest, health-related, is that what's going on? No. Verse 40 tells us what those many things are. Read it with me. Verse 40. Martha, it says, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. The the many things that she's worried about and upset about, I'd be worried too. There are at least 13 dinner guests that have just walked into your house and they're staying the night. She's worried, understandably so. She's distracted because she's trying to do the, the responsibilities of Christian service. God bless her. What I always find fascinating when you study a passage is to look back in church history and see how different Christians of different ages interpreted that passage. Because we all know we live, we have our own cultural blinders. We, we see things through the lens of a 21st century person. When you find this passage, as it's being written about in the Middle Ages, it's very interesting. It was in the Middle Ages they used this passage to justify the beginnings of monasticism. They said, ah, okay, what we have here are two exemplars. Mary, she exemplifies the contemplative life. Martha, she exemplifies the secular life. Mary, she represents the monks and the nuns who who spend every waking moment of their lives concentrating on the Word of God, which is the higher order of Christian life and service, whereas Martha, she represents those other Christians who are are busy with their secular responsibilities. It's very interesting, when you go back and read it, that they they use this passage at times to recruit people to enter monasteries and into uh, convents. Can you think of a problem with that interpretation? There are several problems with That interpretation, but here's the biggest one I can come up with. Martha is not distracted by secular work. She's distracted by ministry. Who is Martha serving in this passage? She's serving Jesus. She's doing it all for Jesus and for Jesus' posse. She's doing it all for Jesus and Jesus' people. She's incredibly busy serving her Lord. If Martha represents anything, she represents a person who is way too committed to ministry and is running around like a chicken with her head cut off, doing lots and lots of good, necessary, given responsibilities that need to take place in the church. This, of course, happens so often in church ministry. and I mean, I see it as a pastor All the time that we volunteer ourselves to death. We sign up for one too many church committee or or sign up to cook one additional meal. We sign up to have one too many people over into our house. And it's all good stuff. It's all stuff for Jesus. It's all stuff for Jesus' people. It's all the things that are really necessary. But But the key is we get so busy serving Jesus, we end up neglecting Jesus! We're so busy serving Jesus that we end up neglecting our relationship with Jesus, and we get it backwards. Whenever you get those two things backwards, you are going to, to burn out. I mean, it happens in pastoral circles. I mean, you go, they interview pastors, and I mean, it turns out that, I don't know, 85% of all pastors say that at any given time, they're burnt out with the ministry. It's all because we're so busy serving Jesus. Not only does it lead to burnout, but it also leads to resentment. And you see that in the passage as well. Martha is not merely a tired woman, but Martha is also an angry and resentful woman. And her words are very reflective of words that I have thought and spoken before. Words along the lines of, why doesn't anybody else do anything in this church? Why are not more people committed in this church? Am I the only one who cares? What we need is just a few more committed folks. To, it's almost eerie when I read the passage. It's eerie how, how closely it resembles events and our own personal experiences that are 2,100 years later. We get burned out. We become resentful or we become self-pitying. It's easy to pity ourselves in in saying the words, look at what I have suffered. I am the only one who is faithful. Ah, I'm the only one who can be trusted to get things done. We, We say those words in a martyr's voice. Verse 42, look there with me. Here's Jesus' response, spoken in... Tender compassion. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, some of your translations say they they have an additional word here. Literally, Mary has chosen what is the better portion. The better portion. I I wonder if Jesus isn't making a pun. We see the story Martha's coming in and out of the kitchen carrying portions of food. And Jesus says, But Mary has, has chosen the better portion. And then, very frustratingly, he never tells us exactly what that portion is. In very cryptic, Jesus like fashion, he d- diagnoses her problem, and then he never explicitly says, okay, and so here's the fix. He never, he never actually tells us. We, as a reader, have to ask ourselves, what is the better portion He's that Mary has chosen? I'll ask you that. In your mind right now, think, what is the better portion? In your own words, what is the better portion Jesus is advocating for? Got it? I think the portion is Christ. I think the the better portion is Jesus himself. I think that if you could summarize the gospel in one sentence, a decent sentence is this, that God has given himself to you. In the incarnation of the Son of God, as he takes upon himself your frailty and, and, and sinful humanity, he has in doing so, given himself to you as your portion. He says, I am the bread of life. I, I have come so that you might feed on me. Therefore, my spirit is yours and my love is yours. My righteousness, my peace, and my life is yours. My victory over death and hell is yours. All of it is yours because I am yours. God has given himself to you. Mary was distracted by very good things. I hope we would all agree that serving God and serving God's people is a good thing. But she's distracted, distracted by, by serving Jesus. When Jesus is trying to say, better to receive from me than to serve me. Serving Jesus Christ is very, very good. Receiving from Jesus Christ is is even better. And that is the most necessary thing that he's talking about. The one thing most necessary is is to be served by him, to, to receive him, to get Jesus from Jesus. Undivided, focused, whole soul, deep listening to him in our lives. Deep attention to him and his word and in prayer and in the sacraments, and and in worship. And, you know, Christian ministry should never take precedence over that. The most necessary thing for our souls is spending focused time at his feet. So, several. I got several applications. I want to go through these quickly. Number one. I know there are a lot of mothers here this morning who you have little children. and (laughs) You read this passage and you think, Man, that would be such a luxury to get a focused, quiet time with Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be nice? There are a lot of mothers here who say, I would love to be Mary. And I feel very guilty that I'm not a Mary. And what I, I want to say to you is the Holy Spirit's intent in this passage is not to make busy mothers feel guilty about their, their strained devotional life. No. That's not what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. Oftentimes, pastors will say, well, you just need to get up and have a quiet time in the morning. If you're busy, just get up 15 minutes earlier. Hey, for you mothers, you've already been up five times in the middle of the night. (laughs) It's not going to do any good to, to say, well, just get up 15 minutes earlier. I mean, you can barely see straight when you do wake up. I think it might be the Holy Spirit's intent to tell your husbands to take the kids out of the house for a while, Second, I'll say this to all the Marthas out there. We, you know, these two women do represent to us two personality types. Martha is the, the doer. She's the, the doer. And I think it's not the Holy Spirit's intent to make you who have that go-getter do kind of mentality to make you feel guilty. I know I'm a Martha and I should be a Mary. That's not what the Holy Spirit's trying to do here. Um, one of the things we love most about you is is that you are a, a martha i'm married to somebody who 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 cannot sit down she can sit still but she cannot sit down how many of you are married to somebody as soon as the time comes it's like, come on honey come sit beside me on the sofa she, okay i'll come and sit down just as she's about to sit down whoa whoa oh i forgot one thing uh, Milk on the grocery list. Let me go write that. <laughs> write that down. Comes back to sit. Oh, there's just the laundry that, that still needs to be done. Um, that's, who, who, do, who's, who does that describe in here? Does that describe you? Don't change. It's one of the great characteristics about you. We would never get anything done in the world if it, if it were not for you. So, um. But what I would say to you is if you can't sit down with Jesus, and by the way, she can, she does. But if you can't sit down with Jesus, then stand beside him. I find it fascinating that that a number of Christian traditions, they never pray while seated. There's no such thing as folding your hands, closing your eyes, bowing your heads in a seated position and praying. In fact, there's some churches that there are no chairs in the church. That the only way you worship God is by standing through a two-hour service. The whole service. What I would say is, if you can't sit down with Jesus, then stand with him. Pray with him. You can multitask. You can listen to the word as, as you're washing and cleaning. You, you can pray with, with holding hands lifted high as you are, I don't know, as you're doing your activities. Maybe not. Thirdly, I want to say to the other personality type that if you're a Martha, the Holy Spirit's intent is not to make you feel guilty for sitting down. (laughs) Uh, But I do want to remind you, did I say Martha? I meant Mary. Sorry. If you're a Mary, the Holy Spirit's intent is not to make you feel guilty about sitting down. But you do need to remember that if all you ever do is sit there and study and never get to the point of service, that is sinful in it's its own different way. What Jesus is saying here is not,, you know, do away with hospitality and Christian ministry and, and just do Bible study and meditate out in the woods." He says, he says, "I want to be at the center of all of that. I, I want your priorities to, to be right, though. Worship first, serve second. Finally. Fourth application. There is, did you see? There is a popular book that was published a few years ago. It was entitled "Being a Mary in a Martha World." Anybody read that? Being a Mary in a in a Martha world. We it is a Martha world. This is a it's a world of many distractions, never-ending meetings, <laughs> so many demands. Uh, I mean, I don't need to tell you what you already know that. It's a world of overstimulation and loud noise. Well, lots have been, has been written on the good and the ill of cell phones and tablets and how those have changed our neural, neural circuitry, shaping our lives and shaping the way that we, that we think and, and act. Uh, it's a proven fact that, that today we are a hundred times more easily distracted than two generations ago. <laughs> it's also a proven fact that Americans sleep on average of two hours less per night than their great-grandparents did a a century ago. And so living in a Martha world, our tendency is, of course, to blame the world. But what I want you to realize is that the problem isn't primarily with the world that you inhabit. The problem is with the heart that inhabits you. I've come increasingly to see this that I can't can't blame my problems on my smartphone. I can't blame it on my calendar or my boss. I I can't blame it on my busyness. Friends, it always comes down to the daily battle going on inside of the heart to determine whether or not Jesus Christ will get the best part of me and whether or not I will get the best part of him. It's the daily battle that I want you to be most attentive to. It's what Psalm 86 says. When King David, he writes a prayer, which seemed to be so applicable this morning. And I would encourage you to pray Psalm 86, verse 11, as we're passing the elements. We're going to sing during the passing of the bread. So as we pass the wine, pray Psalm 86, verse 11. Lord, grant me an undivided heart. Grant me an undivided heart that I may live in awe of your name. Grant me an undivided heart, a deep listening, a concentrated, focused spot at your feet. Grant me to receive from Christ, to receive Christ from Christ. And let that take precedence always over my doings for Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, that is your portion. That is the portion you have been given. And it's the portion, he says, it's the one thing that will be never taken away from you. Amen.